Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hi, I'm Christian Sager. And before we get into the topic today, I just want to remind everyone that you can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on, on Tumblr. And on Tumblr. We are uh, below the mind on, I think, all of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you just do a search for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you will find us. It will definitely pop up. And they can also email us questions and comments about the episode where? Below the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. And, of course, the mothership is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yeah, definitely make sure that you go to that site so that you can see more of the videos and blog posts and galleries and other content that we produce that are, go beyond the podcast. Yeah, we will beam the knowledge directly. Directly into your body, in the same way that uh, that one might uh, have uh, the wounds of Christ lasered into their body. Yeah, I believe that the way that it works is that a, an angel with five wings flies over you and fires lasers from the wings right into the spots the wounds if, go. If the paintings uh, are any indication, this seems to be the process mm-hmm. involved. So, if you couldn't guess, we are going to talk about. Stigmata today. Yes, yes, stigmata. Uh, a topic I've uh, been wanting to cover here uh, for some time, and uh, and it's it's indeed a very, a very very deep topic. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of there's history, there's science, there's uh, religion, myth, uh, uh, iconography. There are mm-hmm. a lot of psychology. Yeah, 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 psychology, and we certainly can't do every corner of the story justice, even in a two part. Yeah, I I think that it's important to recognize up front that. That we are not uh, experts in, uh, uh, certainly not experts in Catholic history, mm-hmm. which is what, a lot of what we're going to talk about in the first episode is about St. Francis, who is, of course, beatified by the Catholic Church and one of the best known stigmatics in history. Right. And uh, he's essentially the patient zero for stigmata. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he's an interesting figure from, yeah, um, uh, a historical standpoint, but also from a biological standpoint, as we'll get into, as uh, as modern day historians look back at the records and the accounts and try to figure out what might have been going on with his body uh, from a medical standpoint. Yeah, he lived a, a really interesting life, and uh, you know we can go through that sort of chronologically today. But I think it would probably help if we start off by just explaining stigmata as a concept. Uh, and and what it is, where the idea of it came from, and 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 how it resonates with culture today. Indeed, yeah. So to start off, the word itself, stigmata, comes from the Greek stigma, uh, and this refers to the brand with which slaves and criminals in ancient Greece and Rome were marked. Hence, our verb uh, stigmatize to mark as with a brand of disgrace. Yeah. So if you're uh, if you are. St- what, how does that work in terms of um, stigma, uh, stigmatization of the eye? Is that there's a mark on your actual eye? Ah, oh, you know, I don't know about. I that. wonder. I wonder what the connection is there, but I bet it's got to be something like that, given, yeah. given the synonym with markings. I know that if you are suffering the the Catholic stigmata, um, mm-hmm. your eye doctor will probably be able to do nothing. Yeah, they're useless in that <laughs> sense. <laughs> they uh, can't even stop the bleeding. It's true. It's true. So the Catholic stigmata, uh, which uh, a number of you have probably at least absorbed uh, through art or pop culture, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about the physical manifestation of the wounds of Jesus Christ crucified. Yeah, specifically the uh, two wounds in the hand 
They're usually found in the palm, mm-hmm. which is important. We'll come back to that later. There's two wounds in the feet as mm-hmm. well. These are from the nails that were hammered through Christ's hands and feet. And then there's a fifth wound that a lot of people don't recognize, which is uh, on his side. I don't know if it was on his right or left side, but he was uh, lanced or speared uh, by, I, I believe, a Roman soldier as he was carrying the cross. Mm-hmm. I believe it's the right side, at least in... Uh in various paintings. Okay. But okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure of it, if there's a definite right versus left, uh, you know, canonized <laughs> yeah. theory there. So beyond the, the horrific nature of being crucified, hanging from a cross, mm-hmm. bleeding from those wounds, he also had a pretty massive wound in his side, according to, to the Bible and other stories, uh, that that was bleeding and would have killed them anyways, right. presumably. And then there are a number of sort of add-on stigmata wounds you can throw in there that oh, sometimes right. pop up, like uh, the uh, lacerations on the back from uh, being scourged. Yeah, uh, crown of thorns. Crown of thorns. Uh, sometimes bl- uh, bleeding uh, eyes are thrown in as well. It's kind of... Uh, that's, that's more of a Garden of Gethsemane kind of a thing. Oof, that would be, on top of everything else, that would be rough. Yeah, I mean, they really the laid into the man, so um, yeah. you know, there's a lot to choose from. But certainly the the uh, the big five, the five wounds, those are the ones that typically yeah. are around. And in order to be actually recognized, I believe, by the church, too, it, ha- it ha- has to be those five wounds, right? Yes. Okay. Now, I do want to point out that uh, stigmata, uh, it, at least as we're discussing it here, it's not necessarily uh, a purely Christian phenomenon. Um, according to Pamela Ray Heath, uh, MD, uh, in her uh, work, uh, Mind, Matter, Interaction, or a View of Historical Reports, Theories, and Research, she says there are a few accounts of stigmata among Muslims and Hindus. Uh, with Muslims, the alleged stigmata resemble the battle wounds of the prophet uh, and uh, I personally read accounts of uh, 20th, 21st century Indian thinker, philosopher, U.G. Krishnamurti, uh, undergoing, supposedly undergoing physical transformations, the swelling, swellings around the chakras and various uh, discolorations that match up with Hindu iconography. Yeah, so I think it's important to acknowledge that at the top, because as we're going to find throughout the discussion today, there are multiple possible uh, origins for stigmata. And one could potentially be Mm self-mutilation, which might explain why in different religions they're at different points of the body. Another could potentially be psychosomatic, Mm -hmm. which would also explain that if you were hyper fixated in your mind on specific points of your body, then there's a possibility that lesions could appear. Well, it hasn't been proven or not, but there's there's evidence that that might be the case in some of these stigmatic cases. Mm And then, of course, lasers from an angel. Right. That's the other one. Which (laughs) I I believe that uh, most of the research refers to as uh, deific intervention. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, we won't spend a lot of time on that one, but it is interesting to sort of uh, think about it. As non-theologians, you know, why... Why, how that would work with the metaphysics. Like, the best I could think of is that it's sort of like you have... um, you have the, uh, the, the, the birth and death of Christ is kind of a patch that's mm-hmm. applied to the existing reality. So reality comes out like a game comes out, and there's some problems with it. And God says, oh, I really, I've got to put out a, a big patch to fix, fix this, right? Save humanity. But before I get into that, I mean, I, I guess we should obviously just do a quick run through of how, uh, crucifixion and Jesus fit, factors into the Christian and particularly the Catholic worldview. So to summarize, you have the basic notion here that God takes human form 
in the guise of Jesus. He's tortured, killed on a uh, Roman crucifix for the ideas that he spread, and it's through this execution and resurrection of God incarnate that humanity is redeemed. So God suffers bodily death so that humans might know bodily immortality. Yeah, and and I think that that's important to consider when we're talking about later stigmatics who think of themselves as also suffering Mm -hmm. for the sins of mankind. Right. Um, And I... I think that I have a, a little bit of a logic problem with connecting the dots there for the stigmatics. I yeah. get, I get, uh, the Christian origin story and, uh, believe it or not, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I grew up, uh, going to church, reading the Bible a lot and, um, I have somewhat of an affinity for those stories. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call myself an atheist per se, but I, w- here's how I feel about the whole stigmata okay. thing. I don't necessarily believe that it's deific intervention mm-hmm. going on here, but I w- I think I believe that the peop- most of the people who are uh, affected by stigmata believe it themselves. I believe that they believe. Yeah, there's there's definitely some some fakery in there at times with some of the stigmatic. Oh yeah, but- there's cases that we'll, we'll come across mm-hmm. where people uh, were called out on it, and it was discovered that they were you know it was it was self-mutilation yeah now i mean i like to look at it from 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 different vantage points and of course we invite uh listeners to do that as well but uh but when i try and put myself in the mind uh of the of the you know, really devout believer uh and trying to think well how would this work uh, uh in, in the metaphysics of christianity yeah from a, a purely non-theologian standpoint i think of screen burn you know the old uh, phenomenon where you'd have your your, tele- your computer screen. You leave some text up there too long, and it gets burned into the screen. Oh, right! Like the right. reason why we have screensavers. Yeah, that it's uh, essentially <laughs> your screensaver is not up on your your faith, and so you're so into thinking about uh, Christ and uh, and uh, the iconography of Christ and uh, and His holiness, and and then it ends up uh, manifesting in your hands mm-hmm. and your body. Mm-hmm. Or a more elaborate uh, version that came to mind is that it's. Uh, like a pre-Christ world is uh, is like a game that comes out. Okay, uh, it comes out a little too early. A lot of work went into creating this video game, but uh, there are some problems. So God says, "All right, I've got to apply a patch to this thing." So He releases the patch, but the patch, as we all know, you apply a big patch to a game, it just creates more bugs, yeah, little bugs, and yeah. so maybe the stigmata is uh, is kind of a, a bug uh, in the game post patch. Uh, that is just a, sort of an accident. Right. It's difficult because within the, the, the actual, I want to call it lore as if we're like referring to some kind of supernatural vampire story here, <laughs> but like within the text of the Bible, there's only one mention of stigmata and even that is fairly vague. I believe it's in Galatians, uh, and it, it's in reference to the apostle Paul. But it's not entirely known if he's actually talking about stigmata. The way that he refers to it as uh, manifesting on his body is the marks of Christ. Indeed, indeed. And just to put that in the uh, in the context of the timeline here, uh, Paul would have lived uh, uh, 5 CE to 67 CE. Right. And the exact quote, I'm sorry I didn't have it earlier, was, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, does... By marks, does he mean literally the wounds through the hands and feet and side, or mm-hmm. does he mean something else? A big tattoo, maybe. Maybe a tattoo, maybe it's metaphorical. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that later. But I believe that it's best if we start off with what you refer to as patient zero with, with St. Francis, who's really like the case uh, that, that 
that has the most, um, not evidence because, uh, you know, it happened, what, 800, 900 yeah. years ago? Uh, but, but there's a lot of documentation about it and, and, um, discussion about the wounds. Yeah, he lived close to 800 years ago and he's, uh, he's definitely the, the trendsetter. This is the, the, the patient zero for stigmata. Um, and, uh, you know, modern historians continue to sort through early biographies to make sense of the, the terms used in the accounts uh, given, uh, and in some cases make an argument for uh, the stigmata's roots in uh, natural world illness rather than supernatural miracle, which we'll, we'll get into. But, uh, yeah, Francis today is known as the patron saint of animals and the environment, uh, the father of the Franciscan order. Uh, he was born in 1181, uh, died in 1226, and the key event in his life, uh, for the purposes of discussing stigmata, is that uh, uh, late in his life, he's on the slopes of Italy's Mount Laverna, and he's visited by this fiery vision of a crucified Christ, uh, flames twisting into the form of seraph wings. And according to the lore, uh, this is such an intense mystical experience that it inflicts the wounds of the crucifixion right onto Francis's hands and feet. Yeah. Whereas depicted in uh, some of the paintings that we were looking at, yeah. laser beams from a fire. That's what angel. it looks like in the in these images. Yeah, uh, and and what's interesting about this is that there is some documentation that says that there was someone with Fran- Francis when this happened, and uh, I, I believe the understanding was that they didn't see. This, mm-hmm. uh, this angelic manifestation in the way that uh, Francis described to them, but that they did see him, you know, kind of fall in pain and all of a sudden have these wounds. Well, it makes sense that someone would be with him, right? Because mm-hmm. as we'll discuss, uh, Francis was he not was, a well man in his he late was life. fairly infirm, and by late life, I think he lived into his 40s, yeah. maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. Which even for the time, was yeah. not. not he, great. he was only a little bit older than us. Yeah. So if he was to say, "Hey, I'm going to go out into the wilderness and uh, pray a little bit," they would have said, "Well, hold on. Yeah, let's, let's, let's send somebody with, with you." <laughs> yeah. So Francis is uh, kind of interesting. It, before he became, you know, the the major figure of the Franciscan order, because he was, you know, he came from I don't know about like wealth, but he was what we would probably refer to as middle class today, uh, and left that to go to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in w- one war, was a prisoner of war, and uh, it was described. I, I think it's accurate to say that he was fairly traumatized by that experience. Yeah, that was the the gist I got from. Uh, the sources we're looking at. Uh, and then he came back, had some epiphanies about life, you know, as would be expected after an experience like that, mm-hmm. was sent to war again, and it was on his way to the second war that he had a vision, correct? Yeah, and this is where accounts get kind of complicated because in the, some accounts seem to indicate that he just either felt unwell or he suffered dreams about uh, becoming unwell. Mm. Depends on who you ask. But at any rate, he definitely had a change of heart. Uh, and maybe there was a there was a, an ailment uh, angle to that as well. There could be, yeah, because he again, like he suffered illness even from a, a fairly young age in life. Uh, and but basically, the vision was that he shouldn't go to war; mm-hmm. uh, that he should go back, devote his life to the teachings of Christ, and and basically modeling on the life of Christ. Uh, and there was a point where he went to Rome, uh, and he, what he took to doing was uh, begging with the poor around Rome and becoming. Uh, becoming a pauper, becoming homeless, essentially, and understanding life from the streets. 
Yeah, and in 1206, which is just uh, you know in the in the years immediately following his uh, his vision, initial vision uh, in which he gave up war, uh, he begins working with lepers, which and and I mean working in close confines with yeah. them, living with them, eating with them, kissing them, etc. Yeah, um, I'd like to stop there for a second. <laughs> So, okay. uh, I have a personal experience. Uh, when I was 15 years old, I went on a trip to Kathmandu in Nepal. Oh, okay. And it was, uh, it was, there was like a tour service, I believe. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fancy or anything, but there was a guide who took us around Kathmandu and we did various activities. And at the time, this was in the early 90s. Uh, there were plenty of lepers around Kathmandu, and it was my first experience, even with hearing the term, much less seeing it in, in real life. Mm-hmm. It is a horrible affliction, and it, it, it's um, extremely sad. But the idea that he was, as you described, in such close contact with these lepers of Rome and other, other towns around Italy mainly... Uh, it just it just goes to show you you know what kind of a man he was how dedicated he was to to the the teachings of the church yeah i mean especially when you think you think about how um complicated the idea of physical ailment was at the time because it's all yeah. tied up with ideas about uh, moral failing and sin as well so yeah. so there's the idea that not only is he working with the disease he's working with people that are perhaps spiritually impure um but uh, again it's very much in keeping with this uh, this this new uh, purpose in his life, right? Yeah, he did not worry about being, I guess, tainted would be the word, mm-hmm. physically or spiritually. So some other high points uh, from his life, 1213, 1214, he had to uh, abort a journey to Morocco, uh, cut out, he cut out in Spain due to, quote, prolonged illness, in which he lost his speech for three days. Uh, 1217, he suffered from uh, court and fever, uh, but accounts differ on whether this was an actual illness or a metaphorical fever, such as a temptation, uh, uh, you know, vision experience. Yeah, and so the the resource that um, we read from that, that accounts on this actually breaks down. You know, t- nowadays when we refer to court and fever, mm-hmm. it's it's synonymous with malaria, uh-huh. I believe, uh, but. What they were saying was that in the Middle Ages, you know, obviously medicine wasn't where it is now, and that there were different types of quote unquote fevers, basically, that they applied to dozens of diseases. Yeah. I think, I think they listed it as like 77 different types of fever were possible at the time. But there were four categories of them, and the way that they categorized them was how often you had the fever. Mm-hmm. So if you had it daily, it was quotidian. If you had it uh, every other day, it was tertian. And if you had it every third day, it was quartan. <laughs> and the fourth one was continuous. You just had it all the time. All right. And then, of course, you could just be saying, I had a fever. And they go, oh, well, yeah. it's sort of a mystical experience. Exactly, yeah. So it's really hard to tell what they meant by this, but... Mm-hmm. We're fairly certain it wasn't malaria that they were referring to, that they meant. Then around 1220, he begins to experience constant eye pain, constant tears flowing out of his eyes. Which gets back to that, uh, your reference to uh, stigmatics who bleed from the eyes. Yeah, yeah indeed. And uh, 1224, that is the year that he suffers the stigmata at Alverna. And after this, it's it's important to note, it's not just a, a matter of these... Um, 
these these wounds or sores manifesting on his hands and feet. He's experiencing pain all over his body at, the, at this point. He's, uh, he has yeah. oozing wounds or sores. He becomes unable to walk. Right. So I, this is something that I wanted to point out, too, is the being unable to walk thing could be a symptom of one of the many other illnesses that mm-hmm. he was exposed to. Or let's... Let's say the stigmata happened and his feet were pierced through as if they had been pierced by nails. I imagine wa- walking would be difficult for any stigmatic. Yes, I would think so. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wondering why that isn't a, a more common symptom that we hear about as we, you know, later talk about other stigmatics in history. Yeah. It seems like they would all be confined to a wheelchair or crutches or something. The year after that, 1225, he receives treatment for his eye pains. And, and when we say treatment, we're talking about the cauterization of veins from ears to eyebrows uh, due to the constant accumulation of fluid. And this was a standard medical procedure of the day. Uh, but he also he felt no pain when he uh, allegedly when mm-hmm. this was administered to him. Mm-hmm. Jeez. And so by 1226, he's almost completely blind. He has a, a wasted body. His skin is darkened. He's vomiting blood, uh, suspected liver and spleen ailments, uh, headaches. And that same year, he dies at age 44. Uh, after a life spent traveling, often far in travel, in poverty, working with the sick, including those with leprosy. So in summary, Francis was a guy who uh, lived in poverty on purpose, so mm-hmm. subsequently probably had poor nutritional practices, uh, he had a history of exposure to many diseases, especially leprosy, and uh, he was debilitated by these diseases through probably the last decade of his life. Yeah. So we have we have plenty of stuff to work with when trying to look for a purely biological explanation for why this guy would have experienced uh, what we would come to know as the stigmata. And a couple other facts about Francis I'd like to throw out there before we dive into the disease part. Francis, did you know this? He was the first person to create a nativity scene. Really? No, yeah. It, it, <laughs> apparently, he was the one who had the idea for that um, around Christmas time, you know, replicating the nativity. Uh, and it was only two years after he died that he became a saint. He was pronounced a saint oh, by, wow. the, by the Pope. Yeah. It's fast turnaround. You don't it, get that today. Right. I would say it, that, that's, I don't know, uh, Pope John Paul, what, it was pretty quick for him, but even still, I don't, I don't think it was within two years. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I think, important to note about Francis that most of the sources we were looking at, uh, there was no indication that he made any personal claims to having yeah. suffered uh, or experienced uh, some sort of a supernatural uh, Christ-like wound in his body. Yeah, that's what's really interesting about this is a lot of the accounts and the research that, that uh, looks into the various evidence is that Francis himself was very reluctant to talk about the stigmata. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, you know, didn't want it to be I mean, publicized would be the wrong word because they didn't exactly have mass media then. But he didn't want it to be something that was spoken of. He was actually worried that if it was talked about that his um, that he you know would be in trouble, that the grace of God that was bestowed upon him would be taken away from him. Um, so he tried to hide the wounds. And there's uh, references to him. Uh, being ill towards the end of his life, you know, laying in bed, uh, monks tending to him Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, one, uh, I think was like maybe washing him or, or, or reaching to, to, uh, move his torso and touched the wound in his side and he, you know, gasped out in pain, but he did not want this monk to say anything about it. It it was not Francis's idea 
I think if we were going to say Francis faked this whole thing so that he seemed like he was a saint, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't match up with the um, the stories of the man in other occasions that he did not seem like the kind of person with the quality of character that would make up a story like this because he didn't even want other people to know about it. Yeah, it wasn't until um, October 3rd, 1226 uh, that, that we know of. That was the first written account of St. Francis having experienced some sort of miraculous uh, wounds. Uh, and this uh, comes to us from uh, the writings of Brother Elias. He says, and he said, and now I announce to you a great joy, a new miracle. The world has never heard of such a miracle, except in the Son of God, who is Christ our Lord. A little while before his death, our brother and father appeared crucified, bearing in his body the five wounds, which are truly the stigmata of Christ. His hands and feet were as if punctured by nails, pierced on both sides, and had scars that were the black color of nails. His side appeared pierced by a lance, and often gave forth droplets of blood. And it it's important to note that line about uh, a new miracle, um, you know, an exceptional miracle, because it it drives home that this was this was a pretty powerful thing to claim about somebody. This was this was a potentially dangerous idea at the time. Absolutely, because uh, and in fact, there were you know other monks that doubted Francis's authenticity with this, and they, I believe, the way that they described it was that he was trying to be a quote new god. Yeah, uh, and that like there was the iconography surrounding this event and specifically stigmatics was questionable because it was drawing attention away from Christianity itself. Yeah, I mean cuz it cuz the initial reaction would be like are you trying to single white female our savior? <laughs> right. Like, what's going on? Um as uh, Arnold uh, I Davidson points out in uh, his um article, Miracles of Bodily Transformation, or How St. Francis Received the Stigmata. He said that Francis' stigmata was written off at the time, as, as we just saw, as a unique miracle, indeed a miracle greater than any other miracle. And even then, to counter doubts and denials in the day at yeah. that time, yeah. required nine papal bulls. Uh, so you oh. had to have some, you know, some big... Uh, authoritative uh, statements, some big press releases yeah, come down yeah. uh, from uh, from the Pope's office saying, no, this is the real thing. This is for real. Yeah, and from my reading, it sounds like um, the Pope's, at the time of his life, had met with him personally on several occasions, too. Yeah. So they were well aware of this. It wasn't as if he was just, you know, uh, someone who was rather low on the echelon of the Catholic hierarchy. Yeah, and various other uh, accounts in the time of stigmata were, were often just completely uh, thrown out just rejected as right. as uh, you know scandalous or even potentially heretical because the, the basic idea is you're presenting Francis not only as saintly but but almost as this new Christ yeah and we should say here too that uh it it's somewhat misleading to describe saint francis as the first stigmatic mm-hmm. because there were between uh, Christ's death and between saint francis's life there were cases of quote unquote stigmata but we'll get into it later about whether that actually meant wounds as we come to understand them as being stigmatic or not uh it could mean many other things based on the literature at the time one one thing i wanted to talk about with saint francis is 
um, the description of his stigmata by Thomas Solano in uh, this book that he wrote about St. Francis, The Life of St. Francis from 1228. Did, I, I think you referenced this as well in the yes. notes. The, the the way that he described the wounds in the hands was not just that they were holes like we would imagine from like a horror movie or something, mm-hmm. but that you could actually see the points of the nails protruding from the flesh. Huh. That yeah. they were like, the nail points were pushing up through the flesh and black underneath as if, you know, there were like ghost nails there. Uh, and that, I mean, we think of stigmata today as being a kind of supernatural, scary type symbolism, you know, that you mm-hmm. would, you would see in a horror movie. Uh, but I can't imagine that, that, that seems so much scarier to me. You know, I'm surprised that some, uh, some horror director hasn't glommed onto the, that yet and pulled that into uh, content that they produced because it's just the idea of these permanent nails just kind of just barely pushing up under your skin mm-hmm. is oh it's yeah. excruciating. Yeah, and it's important to note here as well that uh, some of the accounts vary on exactly what uh, mm-hmm. the, the wounds of St. Francis consisted of. Yeah, in the same way that the stigmatic traditions to follow, you'd see everything from you know slight blemishes. Um, and little sores counting stigmata to actual holes or the manifestation of nails. Right, yeah. Sometimes it's just like purple marks in the palms of your hands. All right. Well, you know, let's take a quick break. Okay. And when we come back, we will jump into some of the various uh, disease explanations for the stigmata experienced by St. Francis of Assisi. All right, we're back. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna tick through some of the possible disease explanations here uh, for Saint Francis real quick. Uh, we mentioned that he he traveled into um, some of the swampy territory in Italy. Had to turn back from going to uh, Morocco. So there's is one possibility that he suffered from malaria. Mm-hmm. Now uh, to touch back upon what we talked about earlier, quartan fever and malaria sort of understood as different things at the time. Yes, but. It, it, still, he may have contracted malaria. Yeah, the uh, the late uh, historian Dr. Edward Frederick Hartung uh, made a strong case for uh, uh, malignant malaria as being the uh, uh, the cause of these uh, these these bodily manifestation. Um, though rarely encountered uh, with today's treatment, one complication of malignant malaria infection is uh, the purplish hemorrhage of blood through the skin, also known as purpura. Uh, and, and what's more, prefer usually distribute symmetrically, um, according to uh, to Hartung, uh, on the hands and on the feet. So, is it possible that uh, these supernatural wounds were mere hemorrhages caused by malaria? Yeah, and purpura, or is that how you pronounce it? I think purpura mm-hmm. uh, it, it are, are just one of many types of lesions that can form uh, as a result of the, the various diseases we're going to talk about today, and they're. They're the larger of the categories of lesions that can form on your body as a result. Now, it's worth pointing out that there are some problems with the uh, with the malaria argument. According to uh, Johann uh, Schatzlein and Daniel P. Somasi, uh, it wasn't until the 17th century that physicians could distinguish between the, the fevers of malaria and other fevers. The true cause of malaria wasn't known until the 19th century. The word malaria didn't even exist until the 16th. Right. So we 
we can't be for sure. And also, malaria doesn't affect the bones. And as we'll get into uh, shortly, uh, there's some skeletal evidence that seems to uh, point in the direction of a particular ailment. Right. That's somewhat important for as uh, evidence. Right. Forensic evidence in the case <laughs> of St. Francis. Um, other possibilities, one, some have argued tuberculosis, um, and it's certainly a statistical possibility, but the chances are slim since it didn't become a huge issue uh, until in Europe until the urbanization of the 16th through 19th centuries. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about the tuberculosis argument is that some sources, you know, after his death, suggested that it's possible that he contracted tuberculosis from his mother hmm. uh, because his mother was from France. And it was more common there. Okay. Tuberculosis was more common in France. Um, but most people criticize this as not being a legitimate claim. It's, uh, you know, that, that's just like, well, yeah, you know, maybe. It's possible, but yeah. is, it, is it really likely, especially compared with some of the other candidates? Yeah, there's also speculation that he was anemic as well. But mm-hmm. again, this is all after his life. There's no evidence of either of these things in the actual uh written literature of the time of people who lived around St. Francis. Yeah, which is largely all we have to go on. Mm-hmm. So others have made cases for brucellosis, uh, hemophilia, herpes simplex. But uh, the really convincing one, the one we ended up uh, spending a lot more time on, is leprosy. Because, again, he spent a lot of time with lepers, living with them, eating with them, coming into visual, physical contact with them. Yeah, and his, you know, uh, the ethos of his life was to basically live like them, you know, to mm-hmm. take on the same pains that they had taken on. So it, it seems to me that in, in his mind that contracting leprosy was, uh, was not, you know, a, a punishment per se. It, it was part of the life that he wanted to lead. Yeah. Caring for the ill and for the poor. And it, it, there was a lot of it at the time, too. It was common in medieval Europe. Uh, it was common in 13th century Italy. And there were six leper houses in Assisi alone. Wow. So, you know, interesting uh, side note uh, about uh, leprosy uh, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, leprosy in Europe declined significantly after the Black Plague of 1346 through 53. Right. And I believe the idea there is that because lepers were already uh, susceptible to illness and, and weak, mm-hmm. that they were, you know, largely killed off by the, the plague almost entirely, right? So yeah. that there, there wasn't... Uh, a lot of opportunity to contract it otherwise. Yeah, and, uh, and and there's also a case to be made that the the process of segregating lepers actually decreased transmission, mm-hmm. uh, increases in dietary vitamin C gave some degree of protection against it, and since leprosy and, t- and TB are both caused by different species of the same uh, uh, bacterium, right. uh, the rise of TB, as we discussed, that comes with urbanization, yeah. might have provided protection against leprosy due to cross-immunity. So you have Im- immune responses that are stimulated to fight one infection, uh, and they combat the other. And lepers often uh, con- uh, contracted TB, and those with TB seldom contracted leprosy, even in places where both were endemic. But to clarify... Francis lived almost a hundred years before yes. the Black Plague really kicked in. Right, so we we can't really factor Black Plague into that's that's why it doesn't really come up as one of the uh, the, the potential possibilities. But it, I think that that does help to underline how how complicated it begins to be when you start looking back at a disease yeah. uh, in history, because it of course doesn't exist in isolation. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this reminds me, there's an interesting factoid that you told me before we started recording that sort of places <laughs> St. Francis in history, you know, we're talking about where he is in relation to the Black Plague. Uh, talk about um, 
Genghis Khan. Oh yeah, the the uh, the year uh, Saint Francis was born. 1182, Genghis Khan was 20 years old at the time. So, so that kind of gives you a little bit of a reference point. Yeah, but yeah, particularly if you're maybe more familiar with with Asian history versus uh, European. Mm-hmm. All right, so the case for leprosy. Um, a lot of this comes from a um, paper by uh, Sh- uh, Schlatzen and Somassi, who I mentioned earlier, and I'll make sure to include a link to... Uh, to, to that resource on the landing page of this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com in case you want to check it out. But they contend that what uh, could have been going on here was that it was uh, something known as tuberculoid leprosy. Uh, they, they, they contend that the medieval physicians only understood one form of leprosy, really, and that's the disfiguring lepromatis, which we'll discuss. And they might have missed this more subtle tuberculoid kind of leprosy, that uh, that he might have had. So as like a a lay person not particularly understanding these diseases up close and personal mm-hmm. other than my experience of seeing lepers when I was younger. I'm imagining that let's say this was the case. Uh-huh. He had lesions on his hands and feet and maybe on his side, mm-hmm. but he probably also had lesions across his whole body, right? Right. Yeah, I, uh, that's that's the uh the takeaway that I get, I get from this. Okay, so I mean, in, uh, most people out there are probably thinking of leprosy as just like digits fall off, parts of your mm-hmm. face fall off, things like that. That's co- sort of the popular culture understanding of it. But these these open wounds are popping up everywhere on the body, not just. It, it wasn't necessarily. In, in fact, in some of the descriptions of Saint Francis that we we read for this. They, they described all of the wounds on his body and the oozing sores and the pain that he was constantly in. Yeah. Now, the, the Greeks and Romans, they had three different terms for leprosy. There was lepra, okay. which is scaly, non-leprous skin disease. Mm-hmm. Elephantitis, which was actually true leprosy, uh, and uh, as, as well as uh, filaresis, a uh, parasitic roundworm infection. And also uh, loose, a, a condition that might uh, link to turpuloid le- leprosy, described in the work of, uh, of a second-century Greek uh, Christian philosopher who was not actually widely read uh, in his own time and virtually unknown to 13th-century Europe. So another case where yeah. there's one pocket of understanding about leprosy, but it's not even widely known at the time. Yeah. Um, and to, you know, to further complicate things, you had overlapping terminology and medical texts available uh, at the time. Uh, the, they lacked the medical knowledge to properly diagnose uh, anything other than the classic, just facially disfiguring uh, leprosy mm-hmm. uh, th- that we've uh, discussed here. So, okay, so like I said, I'm sort of a layperson when it comes to this. What, let's get, go back to you mentioned bacteria as being part of leprosy. So, what actually causes it? It's a mycobacterium, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, we should get down to brass tacks on that. Leprosy's caused by the bacteria uh, Microbacterium leprae. And it's uh, highly infectious, easily transmitted, but only a small percentage of individuals actually develop clinically significant disease. The incubation period is between 5 and 20 years, and the nutritional status of the infected plays a big role in whether it actually progresses. And one of the things we know about St. Francis was that he was purposefully mm-hmm. limiting his nutrition as uh, part of his life of poverty. Yeah, he's living poor. He's uh, he's also, you know, going out in the wilderness, um, mm-hmm. you know, which often involves fasting. Yeah. So something to keep in mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the fasting that he did as well. That's true. I hadn't thought about that part. Yeah. He definitely wasn't, like, taking a multi-complex vitamin. <laughs> no, definitely not. So, so, yeah, diet affects the progress, and uh, progress is key. 
in uh, lepromatous leprosy, again, they're really disfiguring when the immune system is just completely overwhelmed. The full range of disfiguring and debilitating symptoms are possible. Nodules, mutilating lesions on the face, also peripheral nerve infections. And this is the, the you know, the one that uh, yeah. the physicians of the day would have been most that's, familiar with. That's what, I mean, I didn't get up close and personal, but that was what I witnessed when yeah. I spent time in Nepal. Yeah, this is the, the just the, the wretched worst leprosy infection you mm. could get. But in tuberculoid leprosy, the body's immune system effectively staves off the greater infection by keeping the infestation isolated to the nerves. So you have flat, uh, slightly discolored patches on the skin okay. uh, with a decreased sensation. Uh, again, we you know, mentioned earlier how he supposedly did not feel the pain of uh, his uh, his eye treatment. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is like, a, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, this is like, a, what do they call it, grayscale? Yeah, yeah, kind Game of, of yeah. Thrones. Yeah, I, I feel I wonder like if that's where George R. R. Martin got the idea for that from. I bet either from there or no, it, it would have. Yeah, the timeline doesn't support it. But there was an episode of uh, Look Around You where they covered the case of cobbles. Oh, I've not heard of this. No. Oh, it um, fabulous uh, British comedy series with okay. kind of a science vibe to it. Uh huh. They had an individual whose skin was turning into rocks. Oh, cobbles, okay. And okay. you see him, and he's basically a pile of rocks sitting on a soundstage. <laughs> talking, but, okay. Um, but anyway. The so, pop culture ways we deal with these horrific ailments that have yeah. that destroyed mankind. Ugh. Ugh. So, yeah, tuberculoid leprosy, the infected nervous system, um, is doing what it can to fight it off, to, to keep it isolated. Uh, but it can result also in uh, neurotic pain, decreased sensitivity in the toes and fingers. And between these two types, there's borderline leprosy, which, you know, kind of a little bit of both, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, we mentioned those, ail- those eye ailments. Uh, it also affects the eyes. 96% of leprosy cases uh, involve some sort of eye issues, infection of the cranial nerves. Uh, they can cease blinking, producing, in- uh, producing insensitivity to damage. Well, and not being able to blink would definitely explain why he was constantly tearing up. Exactly. Also, direct infection of the eyes uh, due to you know damage from fingers, uh, yeah. uh, damage to the tear ducts, excessive tearing, pus formation, and again uh, loss of finger digits uh, because because uh, again it's, a, it's 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 affecting the the nervous system and uh, and causing a decreased sensitivity to the toes and fingers, which uh, in a, in the case of someone with leprosy can result yeah. in. Uh, an easier uh, injury of those digits. So let's uh, hone in on that for a minute. As we referenced earlier, there's evidence uh, that Francis himself was missing digits. And we know this because, what was it, in the early 1800s, they, uh, I'm not sure if they exhumed his corpse or not, but they examined his corpse and were able to find that he was missing uh, several digits. Is that correct? Yeah, based on descriptions and, and later some actual photographs of St. Francis's skeletal remains, there's possible evidence of leprosy in some of the, the missing finger bones. So okay. eight of ten metacarpals, those are the, the closest to the palm, okay, if you look down at your hand now, yeah. are present. And only 16 of 28 phalangeal bones, those are the two outer bones of each finger, mm-hmm. only 16 out of 28 are present on the body. So, so help me to understand this for a second here. If... Uh, again, like let's go with the deific uh, interpretation here mm-hmm. for a moment. If uh, wounds had manifested in his palms and feet as if nails had been driven through them, or even let's say 
for the sake of argument, that he self-mutilated and he hammered nails through his hands and feet himself. Wouldn't there be evidence of that as well in the, the bones that they found? Potentially, yeah. I mean, uh, like how do, you know, it just comes down to how it would have been uh, administered. You know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, there was uh, from what I was reading, there's no evidence of that from uh, from looking at the uh, the bones. There's also nothing nothing to suggest that they were taken as relics or lost because that's probably yeah. in some people's minds. Well, this is a holy dude. Someone probably right. Somebody's wearing a, a necklace of the, right? the the pinky of Saint Francis. And then finally, from the body, there also appears to be an enlargement of nutrient uh, foramina, uh, openings in bones for nourishing blood vessels that could be possible evidence of leprosy having ravaged oh, his body. Okay. Yeah. So if we review these diseases that we spoke about, about possibilities, we talked about malaria, mm-hmm. we talked about tuberculosis, and leprosy. Leprosy, there's a strong case to be made. There seems to be a lot of evidence pointing that way, both in the literature and in actually looking at his body, that he had contracted leprosy from the many years of working with the sick. He was probably a leper himself, it it sounds like, for almost a decade, maybe Mm -hmm. longer, uh, because he had been ill even before uh, in some cases, there's there's accounts of his illness before he even you know took a vow of poverty. Um, maybe you know who knows? Maybe that's why what led him to taking a vow of poverty was that he was what he was uh, sick. So, but at the end of the day, it, it really seems like leprosy is the most logical explanation. I think so. But I mean, based on what what we looked at, like that's the one that seems that there's the, the most evidence for. It, it matches up with his timeline the best. The physical evidence, what little we have, seems to seems to support it. Yeah, uh, and you know, and again, fasting, poor diet, nutrition, it it would have uh, made him even more susceptible to it. And he was he was not a well man for most of his life anyway. Now, this isn't to discount that this was a pretty saintly dude, as I would put it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it it sounds like from all accounts that he was the real deal. He was genuinely very. Uh, a generous man mm-hmm. uh, and who did live his life by the teachings that he followed. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the deific intervention was a result of what we think of as his stigmata today. Yeah. And, you know, you look back on it and uh, I mean, on one level, you can sort of look at the. The, the the stigmata, the holy stigmata, that, the, the tradition that follows, is kind of a, a PR campaign, right? Because you know, at the time, leprosy was seen as a, as a disease of the soul. It's not mm-hmm. the kind of thing a holy man would have. So, to deal with this juxtaposition, you have to come up with a mystical interpretation of what's happening. Why? Because right. it comes down to like, why do bad things happen to good people? Mm-hmm. Why? Why does something this horrible happen to somebody who's doing such good work in the world? Yeah. And you say, well, maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe it's exactly. not a good yeah. thing. He's carrying mm-hmm. the, 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 he's carrying the marks of Christ, who was also, you know, wounded in service to mankind. Yeah. Th- that could be definitely the way that is interpreted, especially because all of the research that I saw, there was never a mention by any of the other clergy that Francis was a leper. There was just mention of his various illnesses and the symptoms that he had for, you know, many years. Right. And, you know, you know, naturally we can never know for certain about any of this. Um, but, you know, when you look at this, this, uh, the supernatural explanation, when you look at the leprosy explanation, there, you could argue that they're kind of shades of uh, the same thing because uh, presumably, 
this, uh, you know, the creator god in this scenario would have, uh, sent the seraph, who sent the seraph would have also created the protozoans responsible for the malaria mm-hmm. or the, or the, uh, or the, you know, the, the bacteria that cause the, the leprosy. And, uh, you know, and, and Francis seems to suggest as much himself. Again, he, he never directly talked about his, uh, you know, any mystical wounds, as we already mentioned. Right. He didn't flaunt it. Right. But, uh, but, but here's just a little something that he said, uh, uh, in in uh, the little flowers of St. Francis. He says, My dear son, be patient, because the weaknesses of the body are given to us in this world by God for the salvation of the soul. So they are of great merit when they are born patiently. Mm. So, I mean, ultimately you have a dude that suffers from leprosy working with lepers uh, in the name of God. And, you know, if, if that's if that's the actual explanation, if that's actually what happened instead of some uh, supernatural explanation, it it seems to me to be perfectly in keeping with that uh, with the values of that faith. Now we've taken a look at patient zero. This is the most I don't know popular isn't the right word I would use, but well known <laughs> uh, example of stigmata in history, and we've discussed two possibilities for it: disease or deific interve- intervention. Uh, in the second part of this episode, we're going to talk about two other possibilities. There's psychosomatic possibilities, and then there's also the possibility of self-mutilation. Right. So we'll uh, we'll get into the psychology and the science of those topics in the next episode. In the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to those social media accounts, as well as a landing page for this episode, which will include links to related content, some outside, re- outside resources of note, uh, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a cool image or two. And again, if you want to get in touch with us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, and you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank <laughs> you.